You're listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts, while the Lakers have two. Bryant, to shot! LeBron James with no regard for human life! Jordan. And now, your hosts, Lauren Lee Chen and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Thanks for tuning in. It's Lauren Lee Chen here with my co-host, Aaron Fishman. It's Halloween week, but things aren't looking as frightening for the Brooklyn Nets this season as they have been in recent years. To teach us about this fast-paced, fun, transitioning young team, we've brought on Sandy Mui, assignment editor for brook-land.com, writer for the Brooklyn Game, and host of the Brooklyn Revolution podcast. She'll tell you everything you'll need to know about what it's been like covering the Nets for the last couple years and the changing expectations for this season. Having just moved to the NYC area myself, I'm starting to get an idea about how ridiculously expensive everything in this city is. There are two things in particular that Sandy doesn't believe in paying for, haircuts and going out to movies. Let's bring her in. Hey, Sandy, it's really great to have you on today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on here today, Lauren and Aaron. It's a great way to spend my lovely Saturday afternoon. Yeah, it's been a roller coaster week for the Nets. They beat the Hawks last Sunday. They lost to the Magic on Tuesday, had an undermanned win over the Cavs on Wednesday, and then got blown out by the Knicks on Friday. What do you think, if anything, should we make of each of those early games, especially maybe the win over the Cavs? Well, I think it's crazy because many people would have written off the Nets right away against the Cavs, you know, just looking at the matchup. Plus, the Nets were on a back-to-back, you know, they lost a tight one against the Magic just the previous night. And granted, Cleveland was on a back-to-back too. They beat the Chicago Bulls just the night before. You know, they're the Cavs, right? Defending Eastern Conference champions right there. I think just because... The Nets lost to the Knicks the very next day. It was not to get too ahead of ourselves. And the Nets actually almost blew their win over the Cavs. They led by as much as 13 points in the third quarter. I was covering the game for two different sites. I was on brooksashwin.com for social, on you know, live tweeting. And I was also covering it for the Brooklyn game for game grades. It was probably the craziest game I've ever covered. Me switching between all these different tabs to tweet and also monitoring the box score for game grades. And I've covered games like the Randy Foy buzzer beater game last season, but this was really something else. It was the craziest last five minutes to a game, definitely of the season. I don't know about for like the past few seasons, but especially the final 43 seconds with the Nets missing all those crucial free throws. Spencer Dinwiddie really saved us though. Yeah, and D'Angelo Russell first year on this team he didn't even play in that game so a really exciting win for the Nets even though as you said they almost blew it I think a lot of people are really excited about D'Angelo Russell for lack of a better term the Lakers kind of gave up on him now they're all in on the Lonzo Ball experience I'd love to hear from you what you're hoping to see just from Russell overall what you've seen so far how his knee's looking And I know I just threw a ton of questions at you, but also just what it's like seeing him take over the mantle of kind of like the face of the franchise, taking Brooke Lopez's place, who was there for nine years. 
I think a lot of pressure is on Rossword because a lot of people see him as the face of the franchise now. It's definitely less pressure than if he was still in LA because he had to get away from all that Nick Young drama. So he's definitely in a new situation here and just feeling Brooklyn. I think he's looked great so far, aside from the fact that he's struggled a bit with his passing and playmaking in his last couple of games. But we've already seen how high his ceiling could potentially be. In the first three games he played, he averaged 21 points, 4.3 rebounds, 7 assists, and 1 point steals. So that's really high for a player who's just beginning his year in Brooklyn. His knee yesterday looked fine. It was just his passing abilities that kind of, you know, granted a lot of the Nets struggled against the Knicks, so that's probably not entirely his fault. And he did have those 15 points, I believe, in 17 minutes. So for a comeback game out of one he missed with that knee injury, it was quite a fall, I'll be honest. It was pretty much a good comeback for what we would have expected. Yeah, my understanding also is that recently the Nets have been pretty cautious or conservative, I guess you could say, with injuries. And so do you think it kind of was more of a better safe than sorry type thing where they're just being extra cautious with the face of their franchise? You know what's interesting? I thought Rondé Hollis Jefferson from a, a few more games back, I forgot who they were against. He had a really scary fall. And I think that looked a lot worse than whatever D'Lo suffered. It's interesting because D'Lo was the one who ended up missing a game and Rondé was fine. So I think it was definitely the Nets taking an extra safety measure just to ensure that Russell was fine and good to go. He's still, it's crazy to say this, he seems like a veteran almost and he's only 21 and it's his third season in the league. But really early on, do you get a sense that he seems a little bit more mature and like he's learned something, he's been able to take away um, some lessons from his short tenure in Los Angeles? It's interesting because I think, like you said, many people do forget he's this young probably because his time in LA was lost due to all that drama. I think just from his contributions to the team on the court, he's shown that he could score, of course. And his playmaking has kind of dwindled a bit from the first three games, but he's shown he could do that too. And he has to do a lot more of that, especially with Jeremy Lin out for the entire season. You know, he's starting at as point guard for the Nets, for sure. Just a little bit more about Brooke Lopez. I'd love to hear because, as I mentioned, he was there for nine seasons. Just such a huge part of what the organization did for so long. How does that feel, just from someone who's been covering the team, to not have him around anymore? This is only my second full season covering the Nets, but mm-hmm. I followed the Nets since 2006. So, Brooke Lopez definitely has a special place in my heart. and. I'm sure every Nets fan admires Lopez for whatever he brought to the team, even though he's gotten a lot of heat for his lack of rebounding abilities. I was very upset the day he was traded. I don't know if you guys read the letter I wrote for brook-1.com, but I think it was the following day when I wrote that because I really felt that Lopez deserved something of that sort just to recognize whatever he brought to this franchise because it was a lot for nine seasons that's great that you wrote a letter i haven't read it but i'll definitely check that out after we're done talking also you mentioned the jeremy lynn injury 
we feel really bad for him. It's just a really disappointing development. A lot of crazy stuff has happened just in the first week alone in the NBA. Of course, I think it was the day after the Gordon Hayward injury in Boston. Mm -hmm. I don't know why I just brought that up. But Lynn unfortunately ruptured his patella tendon and is expected to be sidelined for the rest of the year. And another element that I should add is that he missed more than half of last season with that nagging hamstring injury, and that was his first year as a member of the Nets. What does the devastating injury mean for him in his contract situation where he can opt out after the season if he wanted to um, or stay around? And also, just more broadly, how does it affect the Nets? I was really heartbroken for Jeremy Lin Sue. You could see the look on his face after he fell down. He knew that this one was going to be bad. And to be honest, just from like looking at it, I don't know. I can't, I'm probably not a good judge for just watching injuries like that, but I, I didn't think it would be season ending. And when I found out, I was like, this is terrible news for him, you know, for a guy who only played 36 games last season and now he can't even, you know, he played less than 48 minutes for the entire season. For him with his contract, I'd, I'm expecting him to opt out and potentially sign for less with the Nets if he wants to stay here. You know, $12 million does put them in a bit of a rough boat if he decides to opt in. As for the impact on the team, I'd expect, of course, more playing time for the young guys. You know, we've already touched on D'Angelo Russell, who is starting at point guard, and Lynn's backup, Spencer Dinwiddie, the only player on the roster who plays solely at point guard. He, of course, has to step up. I think Dinwiddie has been pretty impressive so far. As I mentioned in the Cavs game, he pretty much saved the Nets with that three in the final 43 seconds and also the two free throws to seal the deal. Lynn, for the season, he'll have to lead from the sidelines once again. I expect him to be vocal as usual and motivate these guys from the bench, locker rooms, and just off the court in general. Yeah, Nets head coach Kenny Atkinson took a photo with Jeremy in the hospital after his surgery. They have a long history of a relationship with Atkinson being an assistant on the Knicks team during the Linsanity period. Can you speak a little bit more about what you've seen about the nature of their relationship in his time in Brooklyn? And also for Coach Atkinson, how he fits as a coach of this team and the expectations for him from the management? Yeah, I thought the photo of Kenny Atkinson with Jeremy Lin was a nice gesture. It definitely showed that Atkinson cares about Lin and, and, you know, showed up at the hospital just to visit him during his surgery. And I think the storyline I was talking about a lot last year was actually the relationship between the two since it was Lin's first season in Brooklyn. I absolutely adore the pairing of them because the team in general has shown great camaraderie together and I feel like Lynn and Atkinson were really the spearheads of that. You know, Lauren has said they've known each other since the Insanity New York days. And not to say the team couldn't have developed a close bond without those two guys, but it's always great to see their close relationship and Atkinson was a big reason Lynn came to Brooklyn in the first place. It's moments like the one in one of the Nets preseason games against the Knicks when Atkinson looked so engaged in a conversation with Lynn during the fourth quarter. Shout out to Armchair Nets for that video. It was really touching. 
just love to see players and coaches beyond the guy, you know, playing on the court or the guy drawing up plays for the team. And those two are the embodiment of that. As for Atkinson's fit as a coach, you know, you guys asked me to talk about the margin of error for this guy. And I think right now that has a lot to do with the Nets' lack of big men. Atkinson seems to really like the small ball lineup of using a guy like Trevor Booker or a Quincy AC at the five, and that definitely might not bode well against teams with the plethora of bigs. You know, the Nets will be exposed in the interior, especially if they're not performing well in all the other categories of shooting, rebounding, etc. And we saw that in their last preseason game against the 76ers, and definitely also on Friday night against the Knicks. On the other side, though, I think we can begin to start using the term progress more loosely for the Nets. You know, last season with Atkinson in his first year, Sean Marks and him talked a lot about player development and focusing on that as the quote-unquote progress of the team. Well, I think this season, progress is slightly different in that this team expects to finish with more than 20 wins and actually be capable of doing so, even without Jeremy Lin. GM Sean Marks in the front office inherited such a unfavorable position in terms of assets from the last front office regime, mainly stemming from that Pierce KG trade with Boston that gave the Celtics basically all of their draft picks for a long time. Now that you can almost see the light at the end of the tunnel of that, how do you assess the job that the front office has done up to this point? Well, I actually... To prep for this part, I listed out every single deal, at least the ones I could remember, that Sean Marks made. And, you know, there are a lot that shows that this guy really knows what he's doing. So I'm just going to quickly run through them. Of course, the first move that Marks made when he took office, this came a week after that, was signing Sean Kilpatrick. He hasn't played much this season, but it still shows he can score in bunches. Then, of course, there's the Thad Young trade for our lovely sophomore Karis LeVert now, and Sean Marks also traded up in the 2016 draft to get Isaiah Whitehead. Then there's another trade that occurred mid-season last year, Boyan Bogdanovich and Chris McCullough for Andrew Nicholson, Marcus Thorne, and a 2017 first-round pick. Let's focus on the pick in that deal, since both of those players they got in return aren't with the team anymore. There's also... Justin Hamilton for Damari Carroll and the Raptors' 2018 first and second round picks. You know, Carroll has been much more than a salary dump for Brooklyn, as we know but did not expect. At least not many people would have expected. And lastly, there's trading for Andrew Nicholson for Alan Crabb. No draft picks involved here, but when it's all said and done, what has Marks accomplished for this team? Like, there's a lot going on here. There's, of course, the 2018 draft picks, which is a lot more than just the ones they got from the Raptors. I don't think a lot of people know about this. But what's lost in translation sometimes is that they also have the Pacers second rounder in 2018 if Indiana misses the playoffs. That also comes from the Thad Young trade, and it has the number 45 to 60 protections until 2023. But without Paul George, I could potentially see Indiana miss the playoffs, giving the Nets another second rounder. So in a nutshell, the Nets could potentially have one first rounder and two second rounders in 2018. And in the process of 
Charmark's magic, they have gotten some significant players in Karis Levert, Damari Carroll, and Alan Crabb. I'll put a star next to Whitehead since he's kind of the new Chris McCullough alternating back and forth between Long Island and Brooklyn. But not bad for a general manager, am I right? No, that definitely makes sense. Just as you highlighted a lot of those big moves and you touched on Damari Carroll providing more than just being um, someone that they took for a salary dump to help the Raptors. And I think Alan Crabb is a little bit of a different situation. They've wanted him for a while. They tried to get him the year before and then ended up acquiring him from Portland this offseason. Timofey Mozgov also kind of alleviating salary for the Lakers. They got him in the Brook Lopez trade. So just if you can, help me understand what these guys are providing for the team. Also, another common thread with those three is they have playoff experience. And now I'm not predicting that the Nets would will make the playoffs necessarily, but what can their presence provide for such a young team? I think especially with Alan Crabb, you know, a guy the Nets have coveted for more than a year. He's definitely worth every pretty penny Brooklyn technically gave him since the Nets were responsible for that four years, $75 million offer sheet Portland was forced to match in the 2016 offseason, I believe. And he is like the best fit for this Kenny Atkinson run offense because of his ability to shoot from behind the arc. Granted, he hasn't been, you know, exceptional behind the arc in all six of the games he's played so far. You know, similarly to Levert, he's had his own sh- struggle shooting. Kind of rotated between shooting well and poorly. He'd have one good game, one bad one, and so on. But, if you know, if he gets hot, you know, he can be lethal. And he fits right in, as I've said. Then with Carol, it was the common thread at, I believe, Ned's media day that a lot of players and Kenny Atkinson were talking about Carroll for his leadership. And with Carroll so far this season, I think it extends even more beyond that because of what he's been able to provide off the court. You know, the Nets are starting him at small forward, which I thought was interesting because in all of my podcast episodes where I've talked about projected starting lineups, I expected Crab to have the edge over Levert, and now it's like Carroll is thrown into the mix, so that's just really confusing, but everyone covering the Nets has used the phrase more than a salary dump at some point by now to describe <laughs> Carroll. He really is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a lot of people question how much he'd bring to the Nets at the age of 31, you know, on, on the older side for the Nets for sure. And he is coming off some disappointing years since his Atlanta days, but, but he's really delivered Like, his averages of 14.2 points, 6.3 rebounds, and 1.7 steals are insane for a guy at his age. And they're much more than what we could have asked for him. He's shown he really belongs in this, you know, Nets catchphrases are, we go hard, and last season was Brooklyn good. So that kind of culture, too, really fits with this hustle and incredible defense. One moment I wanted to point out was on Friday night against the Knicks, Carroll went down for a few minutes after Michael Beasley hit him in the face. You know, he was grabbing his face for a while. And it was just a common foul, but I was worried about him. 
and a few minutes later, he still dove into the first row to try to grab a loose ball. That's exactly the kind of grit the Nets are after, and for a veteran, even things like that are great for the young guys to see. Thanks for highlighting that. It seems like, unfortunately, so far this season for the Nets, going down with injury has been a common theme. But I'm glad he got back up and was unfazed, diving for that loose ball. I agree with you, though. It seems like a lot of people around the league have said in recent years that he's taken a step back as he's gotten older. Maybe he hasn't been providing the level of defense to which people were accustomed from him. You gotta love the his consistency that he's been giving so far, and he's the second leading scorer behind D'Angelo Russell. So that'll really come in handy with Lynn out for an extended period of time. Just projecting though for the season and what is being expected of this unit. You said earlier you talked about the term progress being defined more loosely with this team and it's not necessarily the number of wins it's also just what you see from a development standpoint with certain players what are some benchmarks whether it's a certain number or just a level of improvement that you'd like to see for the season to be considered a success this year well I guess technically with the 3-3 3-3 record right now. This team is on pace to finish 41-41, right? <laughs> <laughs> Technically, I guess. That would be enough, more than enough, I would say, to land them in the playoffs. I don't think that's going to be the benchmark I want them to go for. But even before the season began, you know, before Lynn got injured, I considered them to be a team that would finish right outside of the playoffs, maybe in the mid-30s for wins. I was, I was going to say... 33 to 35 around that total especially without Lynn now but with this team not playing absolutely god-awful that 33 to 35 one mark still seems reasonable to me I know a lot of the playoff talk was before the season began and it was spearheaded by Lynn making those remarks I think it's great to have high expectations like that I don't know if they've dwindled any bit at all with Lynn out but It'll only motivate them more, and I feel like this team is always motivated by everyone writing them off. Yeah, every, a lot of people, and I think this was kind of an insulting question, were asking who's going to be better between the Knicks and the Nets. <laughs> it was kind of a question that a lot of people like to throw around during the offseason, and it helps that they play in the same state, I guess, for the storyline. But were you hearing that a lot too? I feel like that is one of the most frustrating storylines I've ever heard in my life because the only real rivalry that exists between these two teams is just from the fact that they're both in New York. If you look at recent years, at least the years that I've been watching basketball, it's like only one team is good in a season while the other one is absolutely god-awful and they just take turns in either role. I think a lot of the Nets' progress is lost as a result of that, too, because everyone focuses so much on the win total, but the win total doesn't necessarily determine how soon this team is going to win a championship. You see, the Nets are on a much brighter path for the future, whereas the Knicks don't really even know what they're going on. And I know it's because, like, these two teams face each other two times in the preseason, and now they just face each other on Friday. 
and the Knicks came out on top, but just because they came out on top doesn't mean they're going to be the better team moving forward. Five of eight also of their opening games were played at home, and November is going to be a different story with nine of 13 away from Brooklyn. To what extent do you think that could be a really good test for this young team and give us a better sense, too, of what we have this season with the Brooklyn Nets? Uh, yeah, I am not a big fan of the November schedule. I was, I was assigned- <laughs> They should have asked you. They, why didn't they consult you? I don't understand. Yeah, I don't know. I would have made it so much better than that. <laughs> I was assigning games for that month just a few days ago, and I realized how gross it really is, like, there are three back-to-backs all against the Western Conference teams, including some tough ones against, you know, the likes of Memphis, Houston, Portland. The Nets absolutely sucked in back-to-backs last season. They lost both games in both sets more often than not. So yeah, the November road schedule will definitely be a good test for this team against some important Western teams. I see the Warriors in there actually on the 19th. The most winnable ones, I would say, are against the Lakers, Suns, Nuggets, Jazz, and Mavs. That's, you know, already five out of the 13 games they'll be playing all month. But you got to keep in mind the back-to-backs and how that could hinder their play to to exhaustion or whatnot. Fortunately, a lot of those road games that you mentioned are against subpar teams, but the home games then are a lot of the NBA's elite teams. So it's going to be interesting. A guy that we've brought up in passing a lot during this show is Karis LeVert, someone who I think surprised a lot of people with his play last season and also beginning of this season. He started Brooklyn's last three games as of recording. Since he's a guy that I think a lot of people don't know about if they don't closely follow the Nets, can you tell us a little bit more about what you see for his potential and his skill set? I think as much as everyone's excited about Levert being here for a full season um, now, you know, he started last season injured. As much as he's been impressive with his abilities to be all over the floor on rebounding, stealing, etc., his shooting has been particularly troubling for me. (laughs) He actually struggled last season with the two, but so far this season, while he's averaging more points per game, Then last year, he's shooting worse, like 11.5 points per game on 36.8% field goal shooting, and his three-point shooting is where it's the most troubling, 19.2%. Like, he was a good shooter in college, which is what I don't really get, but maybe it's because even then he missed a lot of games due to his foot injuries, and I know it's only been six games this season, so... Perhaps he's just having another rough patch like in February last season. Hopefully he shows improvement on that end because he's really got the whole package going if he works on his shooting. And maybe until he shows some improvement, the Nets could replace him with Alan Crabb in the lineup. Like He's just not doing so well. And I guess just one final question for you before we let you go. Ronnie Hallis Jefferson now in his third year with the Nets. I feel like he's seeing his role grow this season as well. So far this season, he's been shooting and scoring much more often than he has in his first two years. What have you seen for his role on the team? And also, what do you expect from him in this season and also in the future? 
I've been very impressed with Rondé's shot, and it's really clear that he worked on it a lot over the offseason. No hitch anymore, of course, and he's already scoring a lot more, taking a couple more attempts per game than last season. Really, if it's any player so far, I say we can get a little ahead of ourselves for this season. It's Rondé Hollis-Jefferson. He's still showing defensive capabilities on top of his scoring with his 1.2 steals and 1.2 blocks per game. Unbelievable. And has anyone talked about his free throw shooting too? Out of all the players on the Nets who have attempted at least 10 free throws through the six games, he has the second highest percentage shooting 90.6% from the line, and he has the most attempts too with 32. Teams are going to have to find a different guy to foul late in games, probably Trevor Booker, no offense, <laughs> because he's because Rondo is not going to be the one missing, except for that single free throw in the final minute against the Cavs. But I think with Rondo, Nets fans have a lot to look forward to, and it's interesting because he's still starting at the four, I believe, for the Nets. So that small ball is still in his blood, but it's really working out for him. When I was researching for this conversation, I didn't notice that. That's really interesting how Hollis Jefferson's getting to the line more than five times per game and over 90% as of recording time. Just 22 years old, won't turn 23 until January. And as Lauren said, I really appreciate you joining us. It's great to have you on and talk about this team that is really intriguing, but in an underrated way. Not a lot of people around the league are talking about them other than in reference to the Jeremy Lin injury. They just play at such a fast pace and are such a young team. I'm excited for the season. I think it's going to be fun. I think Nets fans have a lot to look forward to, even with Lin now, because we've seen that the Nets can stay exciting. They definitely have that pace going for them in that regard. And we'll see how many wins they come out with, but it's just a lot to watch for. Thanks so much, Sandy. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. You as well, Aaron and Lauren.